Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat, and uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in a couple of places today. Well, we're going to be in a lot of different places today, but we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 and John chapter 15, if you want to put your fingers in those two, uh, in those two spots. So, how are we today? Yeah, I got to tell you, the nine was a little low energy, um, and so, so I'm counting on you this afternoon. Um, okay, so we are... Um, we are uh, we are in the second week of a 10-week series on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a list of attributes that the Apostle Paul writes into his letter to the church in Galatia, where he's explaining really the attributes of God that should start to bear fruit in our lives as Christians. And he gives nine of them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, and so these are the things that that he's used this imagery of that God is the, or Jesus is the vine and that we are the branches and that, that being connected with him through faith and in relationship with him in that way means that, that his spirit is flowing through the vine into us bearing particular kinds of fruit. And so the first one that we're going to talk about in depth today is the first one on the list, love. So love is the first one on the list by intention. It, it matters that it's the first one there. Uh, that some biblical commentators actually say that, that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. Fruit is singular. And so that it's actually the fruit of the Spirit is love. In parentheses, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, uh, that, that all of the rest of the fruits of the Spirit flow out of love. None of, the, none of the rest of the fruits of the Spirit work if you don't have the first one of, of love. And so this is intentional as well because, God, because Paul recognizes that he's a student of the Scripture and he sees in the Scripture as well that love is clearly displayed as one of the primary defining characteristics of God himself. Our God is a God of love. And it says it over and over and over again in the Scripture. Let me give you a very quick snapshot of just some of the places where it talks about this. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 34, God has taken Moses uh, and had him go to the top of the mountain. And there's this big, glorious cloud around him, of this light-filled cloud of glory all around Moses because the presence of God is there. And God, uh, God appears to Moses and stands next to him, it says. And a fascinating thing happens. God sings a song about God. He, he proclaims himself. He gives his name. He says, this, this is who I am. And this is, this is the song that he sings. It goes like this. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he has a name tag. God has a name tag. Hello, my name is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love in steadfast love and faithfulness. And these are big words too, right? I mean, when they talk about, when God talks about his own love, he's abounding in it. I mean, this isn't, he's not a miser when it comes to these things, right? He's not frugal with his love. He's abounding in it. And not just any kind of love, but steadfast love. Love that sticks to you. Love that is unshakable. Love that Paul says we can never be separated from. That it is an abundant and steadfast love that is God. Four more times in the Old Testament, this same phrase, abounding in steadfast love, is, is used. Psalm 103 that we read part of today says, he has, way, he has made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. These are big, I mean, these are big extreme words that are being used, right? That, that, so I had the opportunity, um, last couple days, my brother owns a house down in Oriental, uh, which is uh, in North Carolina, down, the, uh, down in the coast, and it's, it's very isolated out there at his house, and he, a dock goes out into the middle of the river, Sound River, uh, and, uh, and, and so we'll go out there to fish at night and cut the lights off, and when you look up, it's just stars everywhere. I mean, you can literally see the Milky Way. You, know, you, can see, you can see the kind of creamy stuff in the sky, right? And, and I mean, everywhere that you look, there are stars and stars and stars. And the people who, uh, who would be hearing this psalm for the first time, there was no electricity. There was no light pollution anywhere. And then we hear, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That big. These are, these are words of extreme, immeasurable quantities and of quality. His steadfast love that, and that he removes as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? That forever, forever far, right? I mean, they don't, like, they don't ever come together. There's no place where they go, here we are, at the intersection of east and west. I mean, they, they, are, they are limitless directions that the Lord has removed our sins from us because of his love and compassion for us as a father shows compassion to his children. What great words to describe who God is. The New Testament gets very overt. The New Testament in 1 John chapter 4 says, God is love. No metaphor, right? God is love. He is, he is a bundle of holy love. That's what he is. We, we, God is revealed to us in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one, in one Godhead. And so God exists in loving community with himself. He is love. That is, that is what he is. And, then, and we see that love flow out of him as well. And this is the God 
in whose image we are created. And so it makes a lot of sense that if the primary characteristic of God is love, that it should be a primary characteristic of his followers who were made in his image and recreated in his image through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? So, if, so Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, number one, love. Love. Let, let me give you one other example of this. Here's the, of the extreme nature of love. Uh, in the scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you hear, that it's, you hear this at every wedding, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Wait, did you hear the superpowers that he just described? Like one, you're speaking in the tongues of angels. That's cool. I don't know what that sounds like, but that's, that's cool, right? I mean, that, like, that, that's not normal uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and profoundly amazing. Uh, doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you don't have love. If you have prophetic powers and know everything on the planet, um, every, and I'm not talking about like no, like 13-year-olds know everything on the planet, right? I'm talking about like really know everything on the planet and you have all the mysteries figured out and you have so much faith that you can walk through the Himalayas and be like, giant mountain, gone, right? Like that's, that's the kind of superpowers that you have and Paul says, you are nothing, Nothing, nothing. Not like you're pretty cool, but you're lacking in. No, no, you're nothing. It's all about love because God is love and it's all about God. Right? So, so none of the rest of the fruits of the Spirit work without this central attribute of who God is. But here's, here's the big question then, right? Okay, so we've already established God is love and that, that of course, that you're seeing that starts to lead to then we need to be loving as well if we belong to him and that's the fruit of the Spirit. But, and have restraint when I ask this question. What is love? I know you want to sing the song, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me, right? You, I know, yeah, but, but what, it's, a, it's a legit question, right? Like, what is it? What is love? Um, that, that what, where does it, where do we, where do we go to know what it looks like? How, how do you, how do we define what it is? And cause the Bible is great cause it doesn't just, it doesn't just tell us that God is love and that we should be loving and then let us figure it out. It actually, uh, it actually does not presume that we know what love is or that we know how to do it. And, and it teaches us that as well, we need guidance in this. It's like if you look in our culture right now, clearly we have, we have diminished this word in our culture because I love my wife and I love bacon. That's the same word, hopefully not the same thing. Right, like I'm hoping there's degrees at least something in here. Right, like, that there that there is uh, that we have this also very romantic view of love. That that uh, Valentine's Day, like, don't come talk to. I hate Valentine's Day. I hate it. 
Like, I hate it because it is not a biblical understanding of love. That is all like, you better get me something. You better get me something good. And it's more expensive at this time, but that's okay because it's this day that you're supposed to love me. And if you don't love me right on this day, I don't know if you love me at all. Like, do you see the problems with what Hallmark has done to us in this, right? So I hate Valentine's Day. We don't do anything on Valentine's Day. I'll be like, Karen, I'll buy you two dozen roses the next week, and it'll be half the price. Right and uh, and uh, and she's like cool. Right, so uh, so so we have this romantic understanding of love. We also have an overly sexualized view of love. In fact, we call sex making love, not biblical language. It's not. Wh- where do you? Where does it make? Like wh- you, you produce that? Like what does that even mean? What? I don't know how that works, right? When actually the the biblical language that is used about sex is knowing one another. Man, that's a sermon for another day I wish we could get into. But the difference between making love that is sort of a concept to the depth and the commitment that it takes to know one another, right? So our culture is is confusing us in this because we have all this sort of trivialized ideas of love, and then it's extremely elevated at the same time where we're saying all we need is love. That's all we need, and love is going to solve all of the problems. Which love is this? Is this the love I have for my wife or the bacon again? Like, what is, is, is bacon saving the world? I don't know. What love is it? And then, and still, what, is, what does it look like? And so then the secular world confuses us even further because uh, it, the definition of love that is popular within our culture right now is love is love. That was helpful. Like, what does that, I mean, what, is that, what does that mean? Love is love. What it means is we can make it whatever we want to make it. But here's the problem. If God is love and God has an objective form, we don't get to make God into whatever we want to make God into. Our opinions don't shape God. God is God, and he has revealed himself to us. We can know him because he has revealed himself to us, but we don't get to shape him and form him. That's not how that works. He created us. And so if we just say, well, love is love, and we can make it into anything that we want, it's really just the same thing as us making God in our own image. I'll decide what love is. I'll decide what's okay. I'll decide the actions and implications that are connected with that. And we'll say love is going to save all things. And then we're going to backtrack and go, and God is love. And I just told you what love is. So therefore, I have defined God for you. Uh, The scripture says God is love. It It does not say love is God. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't go the opposite way that just having some kind of interaction with one another that we'll try to continue to define here is God itself. No, it, God is a being in himself, completely separated from us and whatever we do with each other, that he is still his thing. Now he interacts with us and he engages in us in profoundly loving ways. But let's not be confused that we get to create him or make more of him if we love, right? Um, that he is the source of all love. So, so in order to really answer this question, what is love, we have to untangle Christian belief from what is being taught by our culture and the music we listen to, right? That's where we're being discipled about what love is, is movies and music and 
whatever poems you write to people in your fourth grade class, right? Like that's, that's all that, that's, that's what we've, that's what we've got. And so we need to come back here and go, this is the place where we need to find out what is, what truly is love. And so in John 15, Jesus talks a lot about love. And he says this, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then a little bit later, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You get it? Father loved the son. Son has loved us. Calls us to love one another as he has loved us. So we look to how have God the father and the son interacted with one another and with us to learn how then we love one another. And so, so first then, let's take this. We're going to take understanding God's love for us our love for God, and then our love for one another. That's where we're going to go. Okay, so first, understanding God's love for us. 1 John 10 says this, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the, um, or the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Right? So if you want to know what love is, here's the first place you go, the cross. And not only just the cross and what Jesus did on the cross, but the motivation behind the cross, right? that, uh, that this is love. Not that we loved God first, not that we earned it, not that he went, you love me enough, I'm going to die for you. Not that, but that he, that he initiated with us and sent his son for the atonement of our, of our sins. So the motivation behind it is even more clearly said in the famous verse in chapter 3 of John, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would, would not die but would have eternal life. And so there's, a, there's an intentional, sacrificial uh, action for the flourishing of others that brings and creates community with him. It brings about life. This is starting to get towards a definition of love, a, a, a longing for the flourishing of others, even at your own expense, is what we start to see in the characteristics of God's love. That makes it much more than a feeling. It makes us much more than an affection. It makes it much more than an emotion. It makes it much more than teardrops on our guitar. Sorry. God didn't simply have sentimental feelings for us. He made changes in his own actions for our benefit. Right? Do you see that? That God left heaven by his own initiative in the person of Jesus Christ to become one of us, to be tempted in every way as we are. Again, another sermon for another day, just fascinating. God is te- any way that you've been tempted, any way that you've been tempted, Jesus has been as well. Right? And so he endured all of that in order to love us, to see our, our flourishing. So that's why compassion and justice and affection and service and generosity and all of these sort of things come out of knowing God and belonging to God and, and that fruit that is born uh, in us that is fruit of the Spirit, love, comes from the source of love itself, God. John 15, verse 8, this is what Jesus says. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit 
and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So one of the words that we hear so much in the scripture that it can just become, we can become complacent about it, is this idea of Father. Jesus, Jesus reveals God as Father. Now listen, in our earthly world, in the fallen world that we live in, you may have had a wonderful relationship with your father and he has supported you and cared for you uh, and loved you deeply and steadfastly your whole life. On the other hand, you may have had a father that abandoned you or hurt you or abused you. Or, but when we see God, no matter what our earthly experience, we see what fathers should be. If you, dads, if you want to know how to parent your kid, you need to read the Bible. You need to see how God loved us as his children so you know what you need to be doing as a dad. He reveals himself to us as father. And when you think of what should a father be, no matter what your earthly father was, what should a father be? All of those images that that we think of, although maybe modernized in our heads, are the same ones that they saw in the ancient Near East. Fathers that protect, fathers that love, Fathers that provide. Fathers that strap their babies to their chest in those little, those little kangaroo marsupial pouches, right? Um, and, uh, and we walk around until our backs ache um, all day around Tweetsie Railroad, and we're sweaty. Like you, were swe- I mean, you got sweat stains here, and, they're just, and you're like, that. my child is 18 months old, will never remember this, but I love them, and I'm going to take them to this place, right? I mean, that's those images of a father just enjoying their child, right? One of my favorite things to do with my kids was to nap with them. You know, there's, it's great baby naps, right? When you, have a, when you have your baby and they're there and they're sleeping and nobody's going to disturb you because you're going to disturb the baby and you're like, I just have to stay right here. This is my job, right? And they're, and they're warm and they're breathing and you're like, this is great, right? That's, Im- that's father images. And here God is calling himself our father. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, I just want you to hear this. You are loved. You are loved by your Father. I mean deeply loved. You are not unlovable. The God of the universe has loved you. You, And you are not alone. And and you are, uh, and and he has loved away your shame, and he has loved away your brokenness. He's removed your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west just because of how much he loves you. Like snuggly kind of love is profoundly theological. We can, we, can, <laughs> we, can, uh, we can talk about, about deep, complex theological things, but perhaps the most complicated theological point for us is that God loves us. And everything else stems from that. The cross stems from that. The, the giving of the Spirit stems from that. The correcting of injustice in the world, the sending out of us, the hope of heaven, all of it stems from the fact that the Father loves us. So just remember that. Like, if you need to fall asleep now, okay. Like, you've got, the, you've got a really important part of this, but there's more if you'll stick around uh, as well. So here's what Paul, Paul is, the, Paul is the pastor of a lot of different churches, and, or the bishop, depending on how you look at it. And, um, uh, and, and so he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and this is what he says to them. As their pastor, he says this to them, and this is my prayer for you as your pastor as well. He, he prays this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. 
That's, that's my prayer for you as Paul has prayed for his churches as well. You are loved by your Father. Okay, so that's God's love for us, and we see it best in the cross. Now, we need to understand our love for God. And so when we understand our love for God, part of it is there's an easy low-hanging fruit part of it where we get to where we have affection for him and we adore him, where, where we sing, where we sing about how we love to him. That's why the, the idea of singing our love, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar um, uh, industry now right? Of, uh, because we recognize that somehow this idea of creativity and bringing about life and newness when it's directed, inspired by someone and directed towards them, there is something amazing and deep and beautiful happening when we sing about how we adore and love our God. And when there's, there's a description of heaven itself that we are going to be around the throne singing a lot because it's just in an overflow of love. So there's, so there's an easy description of love in that way. But then there's, a, there's another part of this. where Because Jesus says this, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so to prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Wait a second, right? Um, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There is an aspect of obedience and submission in love. That love is freeing. We like to think of love as freeing. It frees us. And it does free us from so much. It frees us from self-absorption. It frees us from pride and the, and the evils that pride brings about. It, it saves us from, from being unloved, which we've been created to be loved in the image of God. It saves us from so many things. The scripture says that, that, that true love casts out all fear. It is freeing in so many ways. And also, love is constraining and restraining. It, there, there, it is not just do whatever you want to do, and that's love. Love is love, but love is defined and frees and restrains. That Jesus, this is said a lot in the scripture. Jesus did not die on the cross just out of his love for us. He died on the cross out of obedience to the Father. Right? He, now, he loved us, too, and for God so loved the world that he sent his son, but his son died in obedience to the Father for our blessing, right? So uh, in John 14, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Right? How do they know Jesus loves the Father? Because he follows his commands. John 14 says, uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Second John chapter 1, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning. When Moses was up on the, the, uh, the mountain, he was receiving the commandments of God when God said, I am love, right? Steadfast love, abounding in love. So there's an aspect of obedience and submission and restraining in love. Why is obedience and restraining a part of love? Because love is pursuing the good and flourishing of another. And that means that there are some things that we do that are going to make another not flourish. And we are restrained from those things. 
We are, we are to, to be held back from the things that bring about damage and brokenness. We are, we are kept from those things, right? I, I love my wife. I've made vows to, uh, to be her husband for all time. And that means that is freeing in so many ways. I get to, sp- I get to spend my entire life with the blessing of Karen with me at all times. I mean, uh, the, there's so much that this is, that there's life itself that comes in that. And we understand why Paul talks about the love of God and, and his church as a marital relationship of, of, of the groom and his bride. Because, because I know how much I love my wife, and if Christ loved the church that much and more, we can understand and experience some of the depths of Christ's love. But not only is loving Karen and being married to Karen freeing, it's also restraining. This, this right here is a sign of the covenant I have made with my wife that physically shows everyone I, have, I am restrained in a covenant and cannot make that covenant with anyone else. So I'm off the market. Sorry, if anybody's disappointed, I'm sorry um, today. But, um, but I, have, uh, I, have, I, have chosen, I have chosen Karen among all other women in the world. Anyone else? There's, there's no one else. Uh, and that's a choice, right? That's a choice that I just said, I have given up something in order to have her. I've given up everybody else in order to have her. Right, And so there is a restraining aspect of this. And when we say God's commandments, his, his, uh, he's commanding us not to follow other gods, not to follow things of the world. And, but here's the great part about it, is that Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to follow my commandments. And he says, I tell you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There, there's a, that when we, when we love God and we trust God and we are loved by God and he wants to see that love and flourishing come out, his, con, his constraint is to keep us from what would harm us and other people. So it's not an oppressive, I'm, but if I'm going to love you, you're going to do what I say. Right? It's to say, I, I want to restrain you from going to the places where it's going to hurt. So you can't do anything you want to anymore. You have to choose what is right and good in the Lord. Um, If you're a good parent, you do this too. If you're a good parent, you discipline your kids. If you're a good parent, you tell them not to run in the road. But they're like, I want to run in the road. No. I I realize you have the desire to play on Bryan Boulevard. Um, (laughs) But I'm going to lovingly restrain you. No. No and they weep, and they thrash, and they bite you, and they're like, you're the worst parents ever, and I hate you, and, uh, because I want to do that, and you're telling me no. But you know, as a parent, this is what is best for them, and I'm actually going to endure their wrath to save them from themselves. This is the commands of God that says, I know you have, you have desires and pursuits that you want to, but those, many of those pursuits are going to lead to death itself, that it's going to lead to things that hurt. And so, so, it's, it, so I'm going to say no, no. And so there's restraint in love, and there's a constraining aspect of love. We are chained to Christ. That, Paul uses that image a lot. We are, we're slaves to Christ in that way, but we're slaves to joy, right? If you're going to be chained to something, joy seems like a good thing to be chained to. Right? If you're starving to death and I chain you to the buffet, you're going to be like, 
awesome. Like, this is where I wanted to be anyway, right? I don't, I don't want to. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, it says in Be Thou My Vision, the hymn that we sing oftentimes. Let your goodness like a fetter bind me, tie me to you, because I know that I can drift away. And so God is constraining us in these ways. The problem is, is that culturally right now, what, we, what we're constantly talking about is choice. What we're constantly talking about is love should not restrain anyone's choice in any way in anything. And so what we're really claiming then is, I want sovereignty over my entire life. And if we understand God to be sovereign, then that means we submit to his ways and and what he says is right, not our own ways. And you can't have both. Paul says, you're going to follow the flesh, you're going to follow the spirit. Which is it? Um, and when we say above all, it doesn't, we're going we're to throw off everything except choice in all things. We are going to choose our way into unhealth and brokenness. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to be constrained to what is healthy and true. We submit to God. And so what are we constrained to by loving God? One is him. He says very clearly, number, number one, commandment. You don't have any other gods. He even says, I'm a jealous God. And he doesn't mean like, yeah, God got more attention than me. That's not what he's saying, right? Like, it's not petty jealousy. He's saying, I love you so much that, that, I, that I burn for your affection in that way. And I'm not going to share you with anybody else. In that way, I'm a jealous husband because no one else gets my wife. Right? No one else. Sorry, she's off the market too. If any of the rest of you are disappointed, both of us, off the market, right? Um, that, uh, and, and so there's a jealousy. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a compassionate and passionate and, 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 uh, and powerful desire then to protect and for exclusivity. And God says, I'm it. I'm, I'm what you've got. There is, no, there is no more because I'm everything that you need. And everything else is a false truth and a false God. We're chained to Jesus, affection for him and goodness for him and purity and love and hope that he brings about. We're constrained to the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, and most gentleness, self-control. We are forced to have to endure those things. It's like this, this constraining is actually a really good thing. C.S. Lewis wrote a poem. I won't read the whole thing for you, but it's called Love Constraining to Obedience. And the last, the last stanza says this, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. All of a sudden, we're very willing. But we got snaps on that. Yeah, it's, it's poetry slam day here at, uh, um, at, uh, at Redeemer. So there's, there's a constraining for the health of ourselves and for the flourishing of others and for the glory of God so that we can be in his joy in this amazing way. Okay, so love, God's love for us, our love for God. Now he says this, this is my commandment. Again, we're back in John 15. Uh, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he jumps down a little bit and he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's, it is intentional. It is sacrificial. It is for the flourishing of others, not just what can I get out of it. 
let me tell you this. If you're having struggles in your marriage because you feel like your spouse is not fulfilling your needs, stop trying to get her or him to fulfill all your needs and you start loving them better at your own expense for their flourishing. Die to yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus and serve your wife or your husband. And what you're going to find in that actually is the life and the flourishing that you were really hoping for to begin with. That's the economy of God that it, he turns everything upside down. And he says this, even he says, he says as another point, the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Not even by how well we worship or all the stuff that we know or the Bible knowledge or the serving the community or all the other things that are important and good. But the number one way people will know if we are his disciples are about how he's talking to the church, us. Not even how we love the world. How do we love one another? Because if we can't do it in here, we can't do it anywhere. And so we're called to love deeply in this place. I mean, life pouring into life kind of love in this place. So that the world will know that we are his disciples. Because they'll look at this place and go, that's different. That's, see how they love one another. What's that about? And how do we get that? That's what will set us apart more than anything else. Is that, is how we love one another. And so you see how this flows, right? From, from the Father to the Son to us and to others. And so Jesus says, how do we love one another? Love one another as I have loved you. So you want to know how to love one another? How has Jesus loved us? Again, speaking truth, he, uh, he, uh, he spent time with each other, uh, with other people, with his disciples, with the church that he loved. He intentionally came to them and he he endured hardship and pain for them, for their flourishing. I mean, that there is a putting others above ourselves is where we find true life. Like in Matthew, the great commandment, the first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, those two things are inextricably combined in our lives as Christians. We love God and we love others. And this is a question that we then must ask ourselves. How are we doing with that? I mean, how are we, how are we doing with that? How do, we, how do we love others who have hurt us? How do we love others who seem unlovable? How do we love not just the people who are easy to love, not just the nice, beautiful people and funny people, right, that we like to hang out. Those are all easy people to love. I'm talking about how do you, how do you love the hard people? How do you answer, how do you do this? When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. How do you do that? How do you love like that? This is where it cannot be by our own effort. It cannot be only I'm going to figure out how to love other people. We must be connected to the love of the Father who will flow through the love of the Son, who flows through the love of the Holy Spirit into us that we may share with others. Because it is easy for us to put people in a lovable category and focus on them. In our culture right now, we are significantly divided. And we got to keep talking about this as a church, guys, because the next year is going to be hard, right? Um, and, and so you know what? As a church, we can't be divided by political ideologies, right? Uh, uh, if, you, if you're a red person and you hate blue people, and you're, or you're a blue people, and your enemies are red people, stop it. You're Christians. The ideology that unites us is Christ and the truth of the scripture, right? And so that's what we pursue, and we pursue unity in that. We pursue love in that. Anything else is an idol, and that means you have another God before our God. We're back to this exclusivity thing, 
right? We must love one another deeply that, and beyond societal boundaries. This is why God cares about racism. This is why God cares about the things that divide our culture. This is why God cares about how we spend our money. All of the things that, that, that affect us is, all comes out of love because what unites us is the equality that we have in God and in his love, right? Pursuing the same things. We can't all come together and leave God out of it, decide what is right and good, and try to get along. It's never going to work. What we have to do is die to ourselves, submit to Christ, and he's the one who leads us to flourishing. That's what, this is, that's what we are being called to in loving one another. And that's where true unity and beauty and wholeness comes. But still, right, there's this part in us that goes, I don't, I don't know how I could ever love my enemies. I just, I, how can I love them? They've hurt me. Um, and what they deserve is punishment. They don't deserve love. Here's Here's where this all comes full circle. Here's how we close this because it comes back to the beginning. It all comes down to the Father's love because if you say, how could I ever love my enemies? They deserve punishment. Friends, when the Bible describes you, it said that you used to be an enemy of God. You used to be an enemy of God, a child of wrath, separated from God. It says all of that's biblical language. It says you used to be far away from God and now he's brought near to you. You brought you near. You used to not be a people and now you are a people. God loved you when you were his enemy and your sins against God are greater than anything anyone has ever done to you, no matter how harsh or horrible. And that's not diminishing the horrible aspect of what has happened to you. That's just raising up our understanding of how horrible our own sin is as well. And if God has said, the way I'm going to love my enemies, that's you, I'm going to pursue them, that the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Right? One day there's going to be a great and, and terrible day of the Lord where he's going to make his enemies his footstool. That's his day. That's not our day. Our day is to say we, can, uh, we want our enemies to be defeated by all of us coming to a place of knowing Christ and our enemies are no longer our enemies because our enemies are our friends. Now, that doesn't mean we can't oppose legit enemies. Like, there's legit enemies and not legit enemies, right? Is your, are your enemies your enemies because you're sinning? Are your enemies because you're prideful and you're, and you're petty and you are jealous and you are causing problems? Um, that's not... Look, stop it. You're a Christian, right? Like, I, that, maybe that should just be the name of this sermon, right? Stop it. You're a Christian. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that you should not be the source of the drama in your office or in your school or in your family. You are a Christian. Um, you should be loving others at the expense of yourself. You are no longer petty. You've died to that. You're no longer jealous. You've died to that. You're no longer angry. You died to that. And you've been given new life, the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So sometimes when the people that we think are enemies, you have to repent and they won't be your enemies anymore. Sometimes they're legit enemies, right? Like they are evil. They're, they are pushing back against the will and work of God. And we, it's okay for us to oppose. It's okay for us to oppose those who are hurting others. The, that that uh, we have to end this, this sex trade. We're going to oppose anybody that's in that, right? Like we're going to, we, they are enemies of God and of us. And we have to stand for those who are vulnerable in that. We can oppose, and at the same time, that what our hope for them is, 
even those who are engaged in this horrible, awful practice would, would come to see God himself, come to a place of repentance and belief, and work then to save the people that they have hurt. That, that's what we long for. That's how we love our enemies. And how do we know how to do that? Because that's the exact thing that God did for us. So, friends, all of this, very hard. Can't do it ourselves. That's why Paul says that it's dependent upon the fruit of the Spirit being born in us. So if you long for these things, if you say, yeah, you know what? I need to love my family better. I need to love my coworkers better. I need to love the people who I'm in school with better. Where do you go for that? You press into Jesus. You, you receive the love of the Father and realize how loved you are and how secure you are in that love, and then you beg the Lord to start bearing that fruit in your life as well. And you do the things that need to be done to cultivate that because you are choosing God and choosing his love and and then choosing intentionally because of your love for God to do the things that he loves, which is blessing and making other people flourish in your life. It truly, love truly is the hope of the world because God is love. And God is the one who can straighten out everything that is crooked and bring all those who are lonely into families. You are loved. Let us be known by how we love one another. Pray with me. Lord, let us long for love. Let us long for your love. Let us long to love other people. Let us, let us step out of the anger and the confusion and the division and the bitterness that we live in, that we swim in, in so many aspects of our lives and in our families and our society and in the places that we work. Lord, let us, let us trust that flourishing is really found in you, that obedience to you and submission to you and, uh, and following your ways is submission to joy that our joy may be complete and may others come to know that as well. Lord, let us, let us be people who know the depth of your love, who love one another as a profound example to the world and share that love with folks who do not yet know you as well. All for the glory of your name and all by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.